0: Tess of the D'Urbervilles, a pure woman. Faithfully presented by Thomas Hardy. Read by Bob Neufeld. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Phase the First The Maiden. Chapter 1 On an evening in the latter part of May, a middle-aged man was walking homeward from Shaston to the village of Marlet, in the adjoining vale of Blakemore, or Blackmore. The pair of legs that carried him were rickety, and there was a bias in his gait which inclined him somewhat to the left of a straight line. He occasionally gave a smart nod, as if in confirmation of some opinion, though he was not thinking of anything in particular an empty egg-basket was slung upon his arm the nap of his hat was ruffled a patch being quite worn away at its brim where his thumb came in taking it off presently he was met by an elderly parson astride a grey mare who as he rode hummed a wandering tune good-night to ye said the man with the basket good-night sir john said the parson the pedestrian after another pace or two halted and turned round now sir begging your pardon we met last market-day on this road about this time and i said good-night and you made reply good-night sir john as now i did said the parson and once before that near a month ago i may have then what might your meaning be in calling me sir john these different times when i be plain jack Derbyfield the haggler the parson rode a step or two nearer it was only my whim he said and after a moment's hesitation it was on account of a discovery i made some little time ago whilst i was hunting up pedigrees for the new county history i am parson tringham the antiquary of stagfoot lane don't you really know Derbyfield, that you are the lineal representative of the ancient and knightly family of the d'urbervilles who derive their descent from sir pagan d'urberville that renowned knight who came from normandy with william the conqueror as appears by battle abbey roll never heard of it before sir well it's true uh, throw up your chin a moment so that i may catch the profile of your face better yes that's the d'Urberville nose and chin, a little debased. Your ancestor was one of the twelve knights who assisted the lord of Estramavia in Normandy in his conquest of Glamorganshire. Branches of your family held manors all over this part of England. Their names appear in the pipe-rolls in the name of King Stephen. In the reign of King John, one of them was rich enough to give a manor to the knights-hospitallers, and in Edward the Second's time, your forefather brian was summoned to westminster to attend the great council there you declined a little in oliver cromwell's time but to no serious extent and in charles the second's reign you were made knights of the royal oak for your loyalty Ay, there have been generations of sir johns among you and if knighthood were hereditary, like a baronetcy as it practically was in old times when men were knighted from father to son you would be sir john now you don't say so in short concluded the parson decisively smacking his leg with his switch there's hardly such another family in england day's my eyes and isn't there said derbyfield and here have i been knocking about year after year from pillar to post as if i was no more than the commonest feller in the parish and how long have this news about me been known parson tringham the clergyman explained that as far as he was aware it had quite died out of knowledge and could hardly be said to be known at all his own investigations had begun on a day in the preceding spring when having been engaged in tracing the vicissitudes of the d'urberville family he had observed Derbyfield's name on his wagon and had thereupon been led to make inquiries about his father and grandfather till he had no doubt on the subject at first i resolved not to disturb you with such a useless piece of information said he however our impulses are too strong for our judgment sometimes I thought you might perhaps know something of it all the while. Well, I have heard once or twice; tis true that my family had seen better days afore they came to Blackmore, but I took no notice of it, thinking it to mean that we had once kept two horses where we now keep only one. I've got an old silver spoon and an old graven seal at home too, but Lord, what's a spoon and seal? And to think that I and these noble d'Urbervilles were one flesh all the time. Twas said that my great grandfur had secrets, and didn't care to talk of where he came from. And uh, where do we raise our smoke now, Parson, if I may make so bold? I mean, where do we d'Urbervilles live? "'You don't live anywhere. You are extinct, as a county family.' "'That's bad.' "'Yes.' What the mendacious family chronicles call extinct in the male line—that is, gone down, gone under. Then where do we lie? At Kingsbury Subgrinhill, rows and rows of you in your vaults with your effigies under Purbeck marble canopies. And uh, where be our family mansions and estates? You haven't any. Oh, no lands neither, none though you once had em in abundance as i said for your family consisted of numerous branches in this county there was a seat of yours at kingsbeer and another at sherton and another at millpond and another at lulstead and another at wellbridge and shall we ever come into our own again ah well, that i can't tell and uh, what had i better do about it sir asked Derbyfield after a pause oh nothing nothing except chasten yourself with the thought of how are the mighty fallen it is a fact of some interest to the local historian and genealogist nothing more there are several families among the cottagers of this county of almost equal lustre good night but you'll turn back and have a quart of beer with me on the strength of it parson tringham there's a very pretty brew in tap at the pure drop though to be sure not so good as at rolliver's no thank you not this evening Derbyfield. you've had enough already concluding thus the parson rode on his way with doubts as to his discretion in retailing this curious bit of lore when he was gone Derbyfield walked a few steps in a profound reverie and then sat down upon the grassy bank by the roadside depositing his basket before him in a few minutes a youth appeared in the distance walking in the same direction as that which had been pursued by Derbyfield. the latter on seeing him held up his hand and the lad quickened his pace and came near boy take up that basket i want ee to go on an errand for me the lath-like stripling frowned who be you then john Derbyfield, to order me about and call me boy you know my name as well as i know yours do you do you ah, that's the secret that's the secret now obey my orders and take the message i'm going to charge ye with well fred i don't mind telling you that the secret is that i'm one of a noble race it has been just found out by me this present afternoon p m and as he made the announcement declining from his sitting position luxuriously stretched himself out upon the bank among the daisies the lad stood before Derbyfield and contemplated his length from crown to toe sir john d'urberville that's who i am continued the prostrate man that is if knights were baronets, which they be tis recorded in history all about me dost know of such a place lad as Beer, sub greenhill yes i've been there to greenhill fair well under the church o that city there lie tisn't a city the place i mean leastwise twan't when i was there twas a little one-eyed blinkin sort o of place never you mind the place boy that's not the question before us under the church o' that there parish lie my ancestors hundreds of em in coats of mail and jewels in great lead coffins weighing tons and tons there's not a man in the county of south wessex that's got grander and nobler skillentons in his family than i oh now take up that basket and go on to marlott and when you've come to the pure drop inn tell em to send a horse and carriage to me immediately, to carry me home. And in the bottom of the carriage, they be to put a noggin o' rum in a small bottle, and chalk it up to my account. And when you've done that, go on to my house with the basket, and tell my wife to put away that washin because she needn't finish it, and wait till I come home, as I've news to tell her. As the lad stood in a dubious attitude, Derbyfield put his hand in his pockets, and produced a shilling, one of the chronically few that he possessed. "'Here's for your labour, lad.' This made a difference in the young man's estimate of the position. "'Yes, sir John, thank ye. Anything else I can do for ye, sir John? Tell him at home that I should like for supper.' "'Well.' lamb's fry if they can get it and if they can't blackpot. and if they can't get that well chitterlings will do yes sir john the boy took up the baskets and as he set out the notes of a brass band were heard from the direction of the village what's that said Derbyfield. not on account of i tis the women's club walking sir john why your daughter is one of the members to be sure, I'd quite forgot it in my thoughts of greater things. Well, vamp on to Marnet, will ye, and order that carriage and maybe I'll drive round and inspect the club. The lad departed, and Derbyfield lay waiting on the grass a daisies in the evening sun. Not a soul passed that way for a long while, and the faint notes of the band were the only human sounds audible within the rim of blue hills. Chapter 2. The village of Marlet lay amid the north eastern undulations of the beautiful Vale of Blakemore, or Blackmoor, aforesaid, an engirdled and secluded region, for the most part untrodden as yet by tourist or landscape painter, though within a four hours' journey from London. It is a vale whose acquaintance is best made by viewing it from the summits of the hills that surround it, except perhaps during the droughts of summer. An unguided ramble into its recesses in bad weather is apt to engender dissatisfaction with its narrow, tortuous, and miry ways. This fertile and sheltered tract of country, in which the fields are never brown and the springs never dry, is bounded on the south by the bold chalk ridge that embraces the prominences of Hambledon Hill, Bull Barrow, Nettlecombe Tout, Dogbury, Highstoy, and Bubdown. The traveller from the coast, who after plodding northward for a score of miles over calcareous downs and cornlands suddenly reaches the verge of one of those escarpments is surprised and delighted to behold extended like a map beneath him a country differing absolutely from that which he has passed through behind him the hills are open the sun blazes down upon fields so large as to give an unenclosed character to the landscape The lanes are white, the hedges low and plashed, the atmosphere colourless. Here, in the valley, the world seems to be constructed upon a smaller and more delicate scale. The fields are mere paddocks, so reduced that from this height their hedgerows appear a network of dark green threads overspreading the paler green of the grass. The atmosphere beneath is languorous, and is so tinged with azure that what artists call the middle distance partakes also of that hue while the horizon beyond is of the deepest ultramarine arable lands are few and limited with but slight exceptions the prospect is a broad rich mass of grass and trees mantling minor hills and dales within the major such is the vale of blackmoor the district is of historic no less than topographical interest The Vale was known in former times as the Forest of White Hart, with a curious legend of King Henry III's reign, in which the killing by a certain Thomas de la Linde of a beautiful White Hart, which the King had run down and spared, was made the occasion of a heavy fine. In those days, and till comparatively recent times, the country was densely wooded even now traces of its earlier condition are to be found in the old oak copses and irregular belts of timber that yet survive upon its slopes and the hollow-trunked trees that shade so many of its pastures the forests have departed but some old customs of their shades remain many however linger only in a metamorphosed or disguised form the may-day dance for instance was to be discerned on the afternoon under notice in the guise of the club revel, or club walking, as it was there called. It was an interesting event to the younger inhabitants of Marlott, though its real interest was not observed by the participators in the ceremony. Its singularity lay less in the retention of a custom of walking in procession and dancing on each anniversary than in the members being solely women. In men's clubs such celebrations were, though expiring, less uncommon. But, either the natural shyness of the softer sex, or a sarcastic attitude on the part of male relatives, had denuded such women's clubs as remained, if any other did, or this their glory and consummation. The club of Marlot alone lived to uphold the local cerealia; It had walked for hundreds of years, if not as benefit club, as votive sisterhood of some sort. And it walked still. The banded ones were all dressed in white gowns, a gay survival from old-style days, when cheerfulness and may-time were synonyms, days before the habit of taking long views had reduced emotions to a monotonous average. Their first exhibition of themselves was in a processional march of two and two round the parish. Ideal and real clashed slightly as the sun lit up their figures against the green hedges and creeper-laced house-fronts though the whole troop wore white garments no two whites were alike among them some approached pure blanching some had a bluish pallor some worn by the older characters which had possibly lain by folded for many a year inclined to a cadaverous tint and to a georgian style in addition to the distinction of a white frock every woman and girl carried in her right hand a peeled willow wand and in her left a bunch of white flowers. The peeling of the former and the selection of the latter had been an operation of personal care. There were a few middle-aged and even elderly women in the train, their silver wiry hair and wrinkled faces scourged by time and trouble, having almost a grotesque, certainly a pathetic, appearance in such a jaunty situation in a true view perhaps there was more to be gathered and told of each anxious and experienced one to whom the years were drawing nigh when she should say i have no pleasure in them than of her juvenile comrades but let the elder be passed over here for those under whose bodices the life throbbed quick and warm The young girls formed indeed the majority of the band, and their heads of luxuriant hair reflected in the sunshine every tone of gold and black and brown. Some had beautiful eyes, others a beautiful nose, others a beautiful mouth and figure. Few, if any, had all. A difficulty of arranging their lips in this crude exposure to public scrutiny, an inability to balance their heads and to dissociate self-consciousness from their features, was apparent in them, and showed that they were genuine country-girls, unaccustomed to many eyes. And as each and all of them were warmed without by the sun, so each had a private little sun for her soul to bask in—some dream, some affection, some hobby, at least some remote and distant hope, which, though perhaps starving to nothing, still lived on, as hopes will. They were all cheerful and many of them merry they came round by the pure drop Inn and were turning out of the high-road to pass through a wicket-gate into the meadows when one of the women said the lord a lord why tell sturbifield if there isn't thy father riding home in a carriage a young member of the band turned her head at the exclamation she was a fine and handsome girl not handsomer than some others possibly but her mobile peony mouth and large innocent eyes added eloquence to colour and shape she wore a red ribbon in her hair and was the only one of the white company who could boast of such a pronounced adornment as she looked round Derbyfield was seen moving along the road in a chaise belonging to the pure drop driven by a frizzle-headed brawny damsel with her gown sleeves rolled above her elbows this was the cheerful servant of that establishment who in her part of factotum turned groom and ostler at times Derbyfield, leaning back and with his eyes closed luxuriously was waving his hand above his head and singing in a slow recitative i've got a great family vault in kingsmere and knighted forefathers in lead coffins there the clubists tittered except the girl called Tess in whom a slow heat seemed to rise at the sense that her father was making himself foolish in their eyes he's tired that's all she said hastily and he has got a lift home because our own horse has to rest to-day bless thy simplicity tess said her companions he's got his market niche (laughs) ha 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 look here i won't walk another inch with you if you say any jokes about him tess cried and the colour upon her cheeks spread over her face and neck. In a moment her eyes grew moist, and her glance drooped to the ground. Perceiving that they had really pained her, they said no more, and order again prevailed. Tess's pride would not allow her to turn her head again, to learn what her father's meaning was, if he had any. And thus she moved on with the whole body to the enclosure where there was to be dancing on the green, by the time the spot was reached she had recovered her equanimity and tapped her neighbour with her wand and talked as usual tess durbeyfield at this time of her life was a mere vessel of emotion untinctured by experience the dialect was on her tongue to some extent despite the village school the characteristic intonation of that dialect for this district being the voicing approximately rendered by the syllable probably as rich an utterance as any to be found in human speech. The pouted-up, deep red mouth to which this syllable was native had hardly as yet settled into its definite shape, and her lower lip had a way of thrusting the middle of her top one upward when they closed together after a word. Phases of her childhood lurked in her aspect still. As she walked along to-day, for all her bouncing, handsome womanliness, you could sometimes see her twelfth year in her cheeks or her ninth sparkling from her eyes and even her fifth would flit over the curves of her mouth now and then yet few knew and still fewer considered this a small minority mainly strangers would look long at her in casually passing by and grow momentarily fascinated by her freshness and wonder if they would ever see her again but to almost everybody she was a fine and picturesque country girl and no more nothing was seen or heard further of derbyfield in his triumphal chariot under the conduct of the ostleress and the club having entered the allotted space dancing began as there were no men in the company the girls danced at first with each other but when the hour for the close of labour drew on the masculine inhabitants of the village, together with other idlers and pedestrians, gathered round the spots, and appeared inclined to negotiate for a partner. Among these onlookers were three young men of a superior class, carrying small knapsacks strapped to their shoulders, and stout sticks in their hands. Their general likeness to each other, and their consecutive ages, would almost have suggested that they might be what in fact they were—brothers. The eldest wore the white tie, high waistcoat, and thin-brimmed hat of the regulation curate. The second was the normal undergraduate. The appearance of the third and youngest would hardly have been sufficient to characterize him. There was an uncribbed, uncabined aspect in his eyes and attire, implying that he had hardly as yet found the entrance to his professional groove that he was a desultory, tentative student of something and everything might only have been predicted of him. These three brethren told casual acquaintance that they were spending their wits and holidays in a walking tour through the Vale of Blackmoor, their course being southwesterly from the town of Shaston on the northeast. They leant over the gate by the highway, and inquired as to the meaning of the dance and the white-frocked maids. The two elder of the brothers were plainly not intending to linger more than a moment. But the spectacle of a bevy of girls dancing without male partners seemed to amuse the third, and make him in no hurry to move on. He unstrapped his knapsack, put it with his stick on the hedge-bank, and opened the gate. What are you going to do, Angel? asked the eldest. I'm inclined to go and have a fling with them. Why not all of us? Just for a minute or two. It will not detain us long." "'No, no, nonsense,' said the First. Dancing in public with a troop of country hoydens. suppose we should be seen. Come along, or it will be dark before we get to Castle, and there's no place we can sleep at nearer than that. Besides, we must get through another chapter of a counterblast to agnosticism before we turn in, now I have taken the trouble to bring the book." "'All right.' i'll overtake you and cuthbert in five minutes don't stop i give you my word that i will felix the two elder reluctantly left him and walked on taking their brother's knapsack to relieve him in following and the youngest entered the field this is a thousand pities he said gallantly to two or three of the girls nearest him as soon as there was a pause in the dance where are your partners my dears "'They're not left off work yet,' answered one of the boldest. "'They'll be here, by and by. Till then, will you be one, sir?' "'Certainly. But what's one among so many?' "'Better than none. Tis melancholy work, facing and footing it to one of your own sort, and no clipsing and calling at all. Now pick and choose.' "'Shh! Don't be so forward,' said a shyer girl. The young man, thus invited, glanced them over, and attempted some discrimination. But as the group were also new to him, he could not very well exercise it. He took almost the first that came to hand, which was not the speaker, as she had expected. Nor did it happen to be Tess Derbyfield. Pedigree, ancestral skeletons, monumental record, the Durberville lineaments, did not help Tess in her life's battle as yet even to the extent of attracting to her a dancing-partner over the heads of the commonest peasantry—so much for Norman blood unaided by Victorian lucre. The name of the eclipsing girl, whatever it was, has not been handed down, but she was envied by all as the first who enjoyed the luxury of a masculine partner that evening. Yet such was the force of example that the village young men, who had not hastened to enter the gate while no intruder was in the way, now dropped in quickly, and soon the couples became leavened with rustic youth to a marked extent, till at length the plainest woman in the club was no longer compelled to foot it on the masculine side of the figure. The church clock struck, when suddenly the student said that he must leave, he had been forgetting himself, he had to join his companions as he fell out of the dance his eyes lighted on tess durbeyfield whose own large orbs wore to tell the truth the faintest aspect of reproach that he had not chosen her he too was sorry then that owing to her backwardness he had not observed her and with that in his mind he left the pasture on account of his long delay he started in a flying run down the lane westward and had soon passed the hollow and mounted the next rise he had not yet overtaken his brothers but he paused to get breath and looked back he could see the white figures of the girls in the green enclosure whirling about as they had whirled when he was among them they seemed to have quite forgotten him already all of them except perhaps one this white shape stood apart by the hedge alone from her position he knew it to be the pretty maiden with whom he had not danced. Trifling as the matter was, he yet instinctively felt that she was hurt by his oversight. He wished that he had asked her, he wished that he had inquired her name. She was so modest, so expressive, she had looked so soft in her thin white gown, that he felt he had acted stupidly. However, it could not be helped, and turning, and bending himself to a rapid walk, he dismissed the subject from his mind and of part 1